cultural context for Othello. The England of the early 1600s had just undergone a radical change of monarch and was involved in ambitious ventures of discovery and colonial expansion. The new century brought challenges to the Elizabethan worldview inherited from the Middle Ages and this conflict is represented in the drama of the period. Some of the contemporary religious beliefs and social attitudes which throw light on the hopes, fears, thoughts and actions of the characters in Othello and which Shakespeare exploits while simultaneously calling them into question will be outlined. The Elizabethans inherited from medieval theology the concept of a hierarchical chain of being on which every creature appeared in its ordained position on a ladder descending from God through the angels, king, man and woman in that order to animal, vegetable and finally mineral. It is necessary to know about this belief in a divine order to appreciate the objection to women ruling men and why it was believed that failure to apply reason reduced humans to the animal state of being governed by appetite and instinct. In Shakespeare, a human who falls below the level of man into the realm of bestiality is labelled a monster. Many people thought at the time that moral sensibility was a product of social class. In other words, nobility of behaviour was a consequence of noble birth. And the word villain, used to insult Iago, comes from the Middle English word for peasant. The presence of the word nature in Elizabethan literature, in addition to the imagery deriving from it and arguments about it, stems from the contemporary debate about the definition of nature, which had two contra contradictory aspects, the benign and harmonious, and the malign and violent. Shakespeare's plays also examine the concept of human nature in relationship to nature as a whole. External appearance was believed by many in Shakespeare's time to be an indicator of what lay within, goodness or evil. Appearance versus reality is a central issue in Othello and the imagery of seeming permeates the language of this and many other Shakespeare plays. If appearances, which are all we have to go on, are deceptive and therefore character judgment is false, knowledge is erroneous and truth elusive, then we cannot be sure of anything. This is the conundrum which torments many of Shakespeare's tragic heroes. Because Iago looks honest, Othello assumes him to be incapable of villainy. Black was traditionally the colour of evil and of the devil according to both biblical and mythological sources. In the book of Genesis God declared let there be light to replace primeval darkness and bring truth and beauty into the world. An absence or putting out of light meant a descent into hell. Words associated with light, such as fair and white, were part of a semantic field of beauty and goodness, whereas dark, dusky and night had the opposite connotations of ugliness and barbarism, which Iago is able to use to per powerful effect against the sooty-bosomed moor. A marriage 
between a black man and a white woman and the idea of their possible filthy progeny would have been deeply shocking at the time. The failure of reason was considered to be the cause of the fall of man. Adam allowed his love for Eve to overrule his better judgment and obedience to God, and Elizabethans therefore believed it was dangerous to let reason be dominated by passion. Characters in Shakespeare who become uncontrollably emotional are heading for a fall, as their intellect is what makes them human and superior to beasts, and keeps them sane. Othello gives way to his anger, and this is the downward turning point for him, in a state of heightened passion such as anger and jealousy, mistakes are made. Impulses are activated without sufficient reflection to moderate them, and one is no longer in control of oneself or of the situation. Evil spirits were believed to be ever within earshot and on the watch for an opportunity to corrupt and snatch a human soul from the pathway of righteousness. Characters in Shakespeare who are foolish, proud, or tempted enough to invoke spirits from murky hell to help them commit foul deeds are sealing their own damnation, as both Iago and Othello do in Act 1, Scene 3, Line 352, and Act 3, Scene 3, Line 444. One could also be tricked into carrying an evil creature disguised as a fair one across the threshold with the same dire consequences. Othello fears this is what he has done in marrying Desdemona, and Brabantio in inviting Othello to his house. However, Othello's invitation to evil actually takes the form of giving ear to Iago's temptations and of bonding himself to him. The fear of damnation and hell, apparent in the works of Shakespeare and his fellow playwrights, stems from a contemporary conviction that there literally was such a place below ground, inhabited by tormented souls allowed to walk the earth between midnight and dawn. Hell was typically portrayed the way Othello describes it, as engulfed in dark flames fuelled by sulphur and brimstone. To torture human flesh. The Elizabethans also believed in witches, diabolic possession, and the incarnation of the devil and his agents in human form. Telling lies was a form of deception considered to be much more serious than then than nowadays. It was a diabolical trick because Satan told lies to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Telling the truth was the way to shame the devil, and lying meant putting one's immortal soul at risk, especially since promises and oaths were thought to be witnessed by heaven. A gentleman's word was assumed to be the truth, unless there was good reason to believe otherwise, which in Iago's case there isn't, and it was a grave insult to call someone a liar. Shakespeare 
had already dealt with the theme of jealousy in Much Ado About Nothing, written in 1598, and did so again in The Winter's Tale in 1610. Because irrational, jealousy was viewed as a sudden infection against which there was no prevention or cure. It eroded trust and dissolved the bonds holding together marriages, families and the social framework. It could let in the evil and chaos so greatly feared by Shakespeare's audiences. Chaos was the undoing of God's creation, a return to the darkness and nothingness indicating the breakdown of the chain of being, the harmony of the universe and nature's understood relations. Shakespeare's contemporaries had a terror of a return to the anarchy of the civil wars prior to the Tudor settlement and the mostfully, mostly peaceful reign of Elizabeth. Romance was the genre of courtly love represented in Othello by Cassio the attractive ladies' man with his chivalrous manners and poetic language, devoted to the fair lady, whom he worships as a divinity. She is expected to have rival suitors for her hand, competing for the right to serve her. Romance concerned exotic tales of magic, superstition and travel to distant parts, as well as love affairs, and brought together the masculine ideals of the soldier and the lover as in the Arthurian legends. By definition, the courtly lover had to be a member of high society and concerned above all with the notions of honour and reputation. Cuckoldry, becoming a horned beast, was a prevalent male fear at the time, as it meant not only being an object of ridicule as a man who could not control his wife, and who had married a woman with unnatural sexual appetite, but was related to the wider issue of primogeniture and succession. Illegitimate children could not be assimilated comfortably into the family structure and were seen as a threat to the social fabric and the cause of inheritance complications and sibling resentments, as in the case of King Lear. Though desirable, young and beautiful wives were considered dangerous as they were likely both to captivate their husbands and to be the target for seduction by other men, as Rodrigo suggests. The insistence on female chastity in so many Shakespeare plays is because the security of society and peace of mind of men was dependent upon women's virginity before marriage and chastity after it, meaning faithfulness to their husbands. In a society which passed inheritance down the male line, men needed to be sure that their son was really their own and not someone else's bastard, and a man's reputation would be destroyed by an unfaithful wife. Virginity and chastity were linked to religion through the Virgin Mary, and regarded not only as an ideal state for women, but as a test of the nobility of males, since only the highest orders were thought able to resist the temptations of the flesh, a claim 
Othello actually makes for himself to the Duke. While the remainder of Europe was ruled by monarchs and feudal lords, the northern part of Italy was unique in being organised into autonomous city-states. Venice was one of the most celebrated of these. The first Doge, or Duke of Venice, was elected in 727, and the Republic of Venice survived for more than a thousand years. The Republican Venetians elected a grand council composed of the most prominent citizens, which in turn elected the Doge. Shortly before the year 1000 AD, Venice began to exploit its position at the head of the Adriatic Sea to found a seaborne empire, which would eventually stretch to the Middle East and the shores of the Black Sea. The Venetian Republic fell into decline from 1570 onwards after the loss of Cyprus to the Turks. The position of Cyprus at the crossroads of the Eastern Mediterranean helps to explain its history of invasion and subjugation over a period of 4,000 years. The Christian world, Europe, North Africa, the Middle East and Asia Minor, began to be threatened by Islam almost immediately after its creation in the 7th century. Muslims rapidly conquered all the non-European areas and struck deep into Europe before they were defeated in France. The Christians launched a campaign to win back the holy places of Jerusalem from the Muslims in 1097 and achieved temporary successes. It was these crusades which brought Europeans to Cyprus which they colonised as an ideal base for operations in the Middle East. The Ottoman Turks mounted increasingly powerful operations against the Christians from the 15th century and in 1453 symbolically conquered Constantinople, the cap capital of the Byzantine Empire. The remainder of Greece and most of the Balkans fell soon after leaving Cyprus as a dangerously isolated Christian outpost in the Muslim world. The Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1570, when Othello is set, consolidated Ottoman control of the region and they dominated the eastern Mediterranean from then on. Moors and Moors, which is a, a contraction of as black as a moor, were used very loosely in Elizabethan England to indicate any person of dark or black skin, including Negroes. More correctly, it referred to those Muslims originating in Morocco who had conquered and settled in Spain from the 7th century AD. Parts of Spain remained Muslim, and many Moors from North Africa settled there until the Moorish Kingdom of Granada was finally defeated by the Christian Spanish kings in 1492. The large Moorish population was initially allowed to retain its religion, but by 1526 Islam was outlawed and all Moors had been forcibly converted to Christianity and were known as Moriscos. Many fled the country both before and after this, and there were Christianised Moors throughout Europe by the end of the century. 
with his Spanish name and his sword of Spain. It seems probable that Othello was a Morisco expelled from Spain, and hence a converted Christian. However, because England at this time was anti-Spanish, the English were anti-Morisco too. There were two distinct ethnic groups involved in the Muslim conquest of Spain, and who came to be known as Moors. The Berbers were the original inhabitants of the Barbary coast, the Mediterranean shore of northwest Africa. The word Barbary is used three times in the play. They were conquered and converted to Islam by Arabs in the 7th century. The Berbers typically have much darker skins than Arabs, although not as dark as those of Negroes from Africa. Moors and Moriscos could be either Arabs or Berbers, and although it is uncertain which kind of Moor Shakespeare had in mind, the repeated references to blackness would hardly describe an Arab. In August 1600, the ambassador of the King of Barbary and his retinue visited London and caused a stir with their appearances in public over the next six months. A contemporary audience would have been familiar with Berbers, but much less so with Negroes, and it is therefore likely that Othello is being depicted by Shakespeare as a dark-skinned Berber. Negroes and Blackamoors were considered a problem in England in 1601, when it was decreed that too many had crept into the realm and had become an annoyance. Elizabeth I issued, issued two edicts of deportation for their return to Barbary. Black people at the time were represented either as savages and monsters fit only to be slaves, such as Caliban in The Tempest, or as mysterious and exotic chieftains. Whether menacing and repulsive heathens or romantic and heroic warriors, they were considered dangerous and unnatural because they were foreign. Thomas Rymer's interpretation of the play in the late 17th century as a condemnation of women who run away with blackamoors shows how a black generally general being permitted to elope with an upper-class white woman upset all contemporary notions of decorum. The four moors in Shakespeare are, in chronological order, Aaron in Titus Andronicus, 1593, the Prince of Morocco in The Merchant of Venice, 1596, Othello, 1602-3, and Caliban in The Tempest, 1611, whose mother is from Algiers. All the plays refer to the fear of forcible miscegenation or crossbreeding. A child born to a mixed marriage in Titus Andronicus is described as loathsome as a toad, Act 4, Scene 2, Line 67. A creature used in Othello to express disgust at the act of engendering. However, whereas Aaron and Morocco 
are stereotypically evil or undesirable characters. Othello, like Caliban, is much harder to define. And other is defined as someone who is somehow separated, stigmatized, or noted as being different from the mainstream ideal. The literary stereotype of the alien has been much explored through the ages. In Shakespeare's time, Jews and Moors fulfilled this role. Europe's response to the other has traditionally been racism, misogyny, and religious persecution, all of which are issues in Othello. The theatre. In the early 17th century, when Shakespeare wrote his major tragedies, drama had generally become more political, satirical, violent and tragic compared to the more lyrical tastes and pastoral works of the Elizabethans. There was a growing fashion for the use of artificial masks and elaborate spectacles in plays and poetry and an emphasis on bloodthirsty revenge tragedies in urban settings among fellow playwrights such as Johnson and Webster. However, wit, irony and sophistication of ideas were still paramount in the plots, characterisation and language of the theatre. Playgoing appealed to all sections of the population. The poor stood as groundlings below the raised stage, whilst the wealthier sat in galleries or boxes. King James was a keen theatre-goer and supporter of Shakespeare's company, the King's Men, with a personal interest in witchcraft, religion and the role of the monarch. Contemporary playwrights catered for these tastes in their choice of subject matter and creation of characters. Tragedy Tragedy originated in Dionysiac choral song in the Greece of the 5th century BC. In tragedy, which involves disaster and multiple deaths, some undeserved, the events seem directed by fate, which ironically overrules the intentions and desires of the human victims, creating a sense of waste when exceptional people become fallen and their qualities are lost. The course with which each tragic hero believes will lead to success, in fact, leads to their destruction. Tragedies start with a serious early problem in the plot, related to death, war or failure of judgment, which develops into a catastrophic situation requiring further deaths and noble sacrifices in order for the previous status quo with new participants to be restored. During the drama, there are incidents arousing pity and fear, wherewith to accomplish its catharsis of such emotions according to Aristotle's poetics. Tragedy, described as painful mystery by A.C. Bradley, has long been regarded as the highest genre of drama, having a philosophical seriousness requiring a playwright to produce work at the full stretch of his intellectual powers. In Shakespeare, the initial conflict is caused by a mistaken decision usually the protagonists, based on fear or desire, taken of his own free will 
and against advice or his own better judgment, which starts off a disastrous, irreversible and seemingly inevitable chain of cause and effect events as the hero falls from high to low. Evil or irresponsible acts committed by individuals spread to involve families, court communities and the nation, representing the contemporary belief in the connection between the microcosm and the macrocosm. Whereas time is the healing agent in comedies, it works against the protagonists in tragedies as a coincidence and urgency, which are aspects of a malign fate. Act three is usually the climax of the conflict and thereafter a sense of impending doom is created by the feeling that time is speeding up and out of control until the anagnosis, the hero's and audience's recognition of a painful truth about humanity and the universe. Because high tension cannot be sustained relentlessly for more than two hours in the theatre, there are quasi-comic scenes even in the most serious of Shakespeare's tragedies which serve as ironic juxtapositions. After the multiple body count, at least five, and restoration of justice and order, a trusted character makes the final chorus speech, summing up the tragic events and looking forward to a brighter future. There are striking similarities between Shakespeare tragedies particularly the four major ones written between 1601 and 1606, of which Othello was the second. The parallels lie not only in their plots, which are based on children and parents losing each other, siblings, friends or couples being divorced, murders by relatives, spying and lying. Characterisation, themes and imagery, such as words, appearances, monsters and poison, also echo each other across the plays. In addition, they parallel and contradict each other, adding to the complexity. For example, Iago is an inverted image of Hamlet, as the amoral instead of the moral philosopher, one depending on demonstrable evidence and the other disregarding it. He is also, however, a parallel to the false Claudius in Hamlet, who can smile and smile and be a villain. Nature is in particularly important in the major tragedies as a main source of imagery and the embodiment of paradox, being the origin of both health and disease, good and evil. In Shakespearean tragedy, uncertainty is of the essence, and fundamental human experiences and beliefs are questioned, with mighty opposites being cross-examined, but no verdict given. Along with the tortured heroes, we have to ask ourselves, what constitutes humanity? What are we here for? How can we tell right from wrong? Who is in control? We are asked for our moral awareness, but not our moral judgment, since no one is in a position to judge fellow humans or claim to understand the universe.
the tragic hero must be someone of eminent rank within his own society, a king, prince or military leader, someone better than we are, as Aristotle put it. In classical terms, they become guilty of hubris, an act of presumption as mere mortals. Their overreaching is punished by Nemesis, goddess of retribution, and the audience is expected to respond by feeling the pity of it. The noble hero makes what Aristotle called an error of judgment, which in Greek was called hamartia, which traditionally has been translated as a fatal flaw. The mistake is traceable to a character fault, and this, in unfortunate conjunction with circumstance and coincidence, causes the tragic hero's awesome fall from happiness to misery. During his fall, he will undergo ironic and sudden reversals, which bring him up against the realisation of the unthinkable, as the critic Leech put it. The sense of waste and loss comes from the fact that the hero has almost superhuman qualities in other respects and could have gone on to achieve great things, or as Christopher Marlowe put it in the final chorus of Dr Faustus, cut is the branch that might have grown full straight. Because free will is involved, an accident of birth or fate alone cannot be blamed making the retribution more complex and a cause of concern to all humans. Shakespeare's major tragic heroes appear to have little in common. Hamlet, the young intellectual Dane, treated as a difficult adolescent. Othello, the not-so-young general and blackamoor, newly married. King Lear, widower of over eighty who loses his grip, his mind and his daughters. Macbeth, the married but childless Scottish warrior and serial killer. However, they are all driven mad in one way or another and lose touch with their former selves. In each case, women, whether wives, daughters, mothers or witches, are a force for an extreme of good or evil, or ambiguously both and crucial to the development of the hero, the plot, and the tragedy. They seem to represent nature and what it is capable of. Shakespeare's heroes die ambiguously, either achieving a kind of dignity by showing courage in the final moments, even though possibly continuing to labour under a delusion, or passively cooperating with the workings of divine necessity. The classical view is that the tragic hero makes a fuss, according to Leech, about what has happened to him and the injustice of the world and dies fighting back rather than accepting the unacceptable. The other Christian view is that by recognising his error, taking responsibility for it, repenting of it, and accepting punishment. Redemption 
is possible for the hero. In either case, tragic heroes express the hope that they will survive in the memory of their friends and the state, and that their true story will be told, with its mitigating circumstances, to reduce their culpability and to prove that death can be transcended by fond memory, historical record, or legendary status. It is widely assumed that Shakespeare never left England, though the majority of his plays in all genres are set in other countries. Italy was favoured particularly because it was the origin of the Renaissance and home to many of the source texts which inspired Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Foreign settings also have the advantage of allowing comments on local political and social issues to be made circumspectly, as in The Tempest. Shakespeare wrote two plays set in Venice, a city of interest to Londoners as a major trading rival to which English merchants travelled and brought back reports of its luxuries and vices. Exaggerated travellers' tales were fashionable at the time Othello was written. This is the only Shakespeare play to be set roughly in its own time, 1570. Shakespeare used known sources for 35 of his 37 plays, and it is assumed that the other two must have had sources as yet undiscovered. In this period, before and for some time after, originality of plot or character was not considered necessary or even desirable in literary works. A largely illiterate population and a traditional oral culture created a demand for the reassuringly familiar. Audiences expected to know already the basic storylines, settings and outcomes of plays they attended and the skill and creativity of the playwright was demonstrated by the quality of the improvements made to an existing work, including the adaptation of the genre. There is a particularly full and detailed source for Othello, namely Giraldi Cynthia's story, which may have been called El Capitano Moro, in his collection of a hundred tales called Hecatomythi, published in 1565 in Venice. There is not known to have been an English translation until 1753, so Shakespeare may have read it either in the original Italian or a French translation. He may also have been influenced by a tale in Geoffrey Fenton's Certain Tragical Discourses of 1567, in which a foreign soldier kills his innocent wife out of jealousy. There is also evidence that Shakespeare made use of Lucanor's translation of Cardinal Contarini's Commonwealth and Government of Venice for information about the Venetian state and of Philemon Holland's translation of Pliny's Natural History for the exotic details of Othello's career 
given in his speech of defence before the Venetian Senate. Comparing Shakespeare's play with its source makes it possible to understand and appreciate Othello better. In Cynthia's story, the only named character is Desdemona. Othello is called only the Moor. In Cynthia, there is no elopement or Turkish threat. The couple are travelling on the same ship. Iago falls in love with Desdemona. Iago's sole motive is sexual jealousy of Cassio and Iago has no hatred against Othello. The murder plot is only aimed at Desdemona and there is no Rodrigo character in the Cynthia version. Desdemona's father is not mentioned either and Cassio does not suffer from drunkenness. Furthermore, in the Cynthia story Iago has a young daughter and Iago steals the handkerchief himself in that version, Cassio recognises the handkerchief, but Iago's wife knows the whole story. And in the Cynthia version, Iago and Othello kill Desdemona together, but they frame it to look like an accident. Finally, the Moor is killed by Desdemona's kinsman, and Iago is tortured to death for a completely different crime. Othello is one of the four great tragedies between 1601 and 1610. It was probably written in 1602, although a later date has been argued, but in any case, it was written before 1604 and was written between Hamlet and King Lear. Some have suggested that the play was inspired by the visit of the ambassador of the King of Barbary to London in 1600 to 1601 with his retinue known as the Barbarians, which was much discussed in London at the time. Also, in 1600, there was a translation of John Leo's A Geographical History of Africa in which Leo, a Moor, brought up in Barbary, wrote about his fellow countrymen in terms that are very similar to the character traits of Othello, where they are referred to as honest, proud, high-minded, addicted unto wrath, credulous, subject unto jealousy, and willing to lose their lives rather than put up with disgrace on behalf of their women. Othello has been called a tragedy of intrigue, as opposed to a tragedy of revenge, which was a popular type of play at the time. Jealousy and cuckoldry were traditionally topics for comedy, and there are scenes in the play, particularly the harbour scene and the street scenes, which are typical of this genre. Many of the characters are also recognisable stereotypes from contemporary comedies, such as The Gull, 
or fool, which is in this case Rodrigo, the Senex, the old man, in this case Brabantio, and the clever plotting slave, which is obviously Iago. There is also a classic scene of comic cross-purposes in Cassio's supposed confession, Act 4, Scene 1, which can be compared to the scene in Twelfth Night when Antonio demands his purse from the wrong twin. Othello employs two other comedy conventions, the calumniator or slanderer and the deceiver deceived. What is daring about Othello is that comic devices enrich the tragedy by providing an alternative perspective on it, rather than by being juxtaposed with it, as is the case in Antony and Cleopatra. In Othello, the ludicrous and laughable is an inseparable element of the tragedy, which makes it all the more poignant and ironic. play in performance. First performed at court in the autumn of 1604, Othello has been in continual production for 400 years. However, notions of refinement, decency and female sensibility meant that from the restoration to the recent past, performances were often cut uh, so as to make them more decent. Uh, the clown scenes, the character of Bianca, sexual language, Othello having a fit, and violence against Desdemona were all left out. The willow scene, Act 4, Scene 3, is usually drastically cut, and it's justified on the grounds that the song is omitted from the quarto version. Unjustifiable insertions have also been made to add to the tragic pathos, particularly in the final scene. More than any other Shakespeare play, Othello has caused controversy, and audience reaction has been painfully intense. Unlike in King Lear and Macbeth, the killing of a woman takes place on stage, which creates a highly charged scene and one which is disturbing for audiences. Spectators have frequently been driven to call out warnings and advice to Othello or denunciations of Iago. Race, costume and age are questions affecting the portrayal of Othello. Shakespeare knew that Moors could be tawny-skinned if they came from the Barbary coast of North Africa. Despite Rodrigo's intended insult of thick lips, probably a racist exaggeration, it is likely that Othello is of a lighter skin colour than Negro Black. As a proud Christian, it is unlikely that Othello would be dressed differently from the Venetians, though the stage moors of the plays performed in the 1590s, such as uh, Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Moors Tragedy wore turbans and carried scimitars to indicate religion and temperament. Two of Shakespeare's other Moors dress in this flamboyant and stereotypical way. 
although Othello is supposed to be a lot older than Desdemona, at least 20 years and probably 25 years, many productions cast them as equals in age. Another question for the director or actor is whether Othello should have a foreign accent. Representing in English is non-native use of Italian. The play is a relatively short play and it is very emotionally and physically demanding of the actor playing Othello, particularly during his fit in Act 4, Scene 1. He has to manifest extreme behaviour and passion throughout the second half of the play, and it has been known for actors to suffer illness as a result. There have been two kinds of Othello over the years dignified, lyrical and sensitive, or passionate, sensual and violent. Richard Burbage, the leading actor in Shakespeare's own company, first played the part of the Moor, and his performance was considered deeply moving and acclaimed one of his greatest successes. Other notable Othellos over the centuries have been Thomas Betterton in the early 18th century. Edwin Booth in the 19th century played Othello as a refined and polished Moor. Tommaso Salvini, who uh, represented Othello later, made animal noises and movements and was a tempestuous uh, Othello speaking his lines in Italian and was the first Othello to strike Desdemona. Laurence Olivier, in a modern version, stressed his race and sexuality and gave an outlandish vocal performance. Iago is on stage in nearly every scene and therefore he is under pressure and under the scrutiny of the audience almost continually. He has to avoid looking or behaving like an obvious villain, as this would destroy his credibility. And the point of the play in making, and the point the play is making about the unrecognizability of evil. The crucial thing for an actor to get right is Iago's body language and facial expressions, and to find the balance between being a damaged human and diabolically powerful. Actors complain that motivelessness is unactable and that Shakespeare himself has not got a clear line on Iago. It is interesting that so many famous actors through the centuries have tried the skills in the roles of both Othello and Iago, even switching alternate nights in some cases. Desdemona has to decide how passive to be. The delivery, tone and movement of the actress playing Desdemona is crucial. So for example, does she stay in bed in Act 5, Scene 2, or try to escape from her psychopathic husband when she realises he's going to kill her? Is she completely innocent and naive? Or does she deliberately put on girlish and flirtatious act to get her own way? 
and what about Rodrigo, who is usually played as a comic character, fooled and mocked by Iago, and held in contempt by the audience for his weakness and gullibility. Or, as the Oliver Parker film portrays him, a dangerous and explosive character, driven to more and more violent and desperate acts. Othello was the fifth most popular Shakespeare play, Hamlet being number one, in the 17th century. In 1692, however, after the Restoration, the play was attacked in the hysterical criticism of the notorious Thomas Rymer for its improbability, its lack of justice, and its character assassination of common soldiers. The character of Iago was deemed incredible because soldiers are genuinely honest. It was also interpreted by Rymer and others later as a warning to maidens not to run away with blackamoors and to take better care of their linen. If the reward for innocence is brutal death, then the play can be seen as immoral. This particularly bothered the first real generation of critics in the 18th century, who also caused the ending of King Lear to be rewritten so that Cordelia and Lear did not die. And Dr. Johnson admitted to finding the final scene of Othello unbearable. Shakespeare's genius and the achievement of the tragedies was not fully appreciated until the Romantic period, when an analysis of psychological states and human relationships became the focus of critical interest. Coleridge was an influential critic who responded intuitively and sensitively to the emotions being explored through the medium of the main characters, and who coined the famous phrase concerning Iago's apparent motiveless malignity. The play remained popular throughout the 19th century, with Iago's character as the centre for literary debate. In the first half of the 20th century, however, an argument was begun between A.C. Bradley and F.R. Leavis on the issue of Othello's nobility, Leavis arguing against it. To the present day, critics are divided over the extent to which they consider Othello is to blame, and over whether Othello redeems himself in any way at the end. T.S. Eliot believed that Othello did not redeem himself. A.C. Bradley found the play depressing, and Granville Barker declared it a tragedy without meaning. Although Othello is common on several exam specifications, it is the least popular of the four great tragedies because it's commonly considered to be more domestic and less universal. It is shorter than the others and can be seen as narrower in its scope and lacking in depth. Unusually, there is no subplot or parallel plot in Othello which makes it all the more claustrophobic, along with the relatively small group of characters. Leo Tolstoy called the play the tragedy of the bedroom in order to exaggerate this microscopic focus, though at another level, the play is on a grand geographic scale 
as it covers a large part of the eastern Mediterranean. It may be true that we do not actually like or sympathise with Othello very much, partly because his adversary is the one with the humour. There may also be a suspicion arising from his lack of perception that Othello is not very intelligent or sensitive. A modern perspective may make it easier to identify with problems less related to theology and chastity than those underpinning Othello's dilemma. Othello is, however, as much concerned with the eternal truths as the other three major tragedies, since it continues Hamlet's preoccupation with the power of words and shares with them all a study of relationships, of the nature of evil, and of the paradox of nature preparing the way for the breakdown of family and social bonds that we find in King Lear, and of the understood relations in the universe of Macbeth. In all of them, there is the worrying impossibility of distinguishing appearance from reality, of telling the mind's construction in the face, of exercising judgment and of verifying knowledge. In addition to these grand themes, Othello has poetry, power and pathos, and some of the most fascinating and controversial of Shakespeare's characters. Any play must be considered in relation to its historical and social background and the political climate which produced it, and be viewed in the context of contemporary attitudes. This is especially true of Shakespeare's only play set in his own time. On the other hand, our critical interpretations should include responses to the issues which concern us nowadays, such as the stereotyping of race and gender in the portrayal of women and black people. A feminist critique will try to show whether the play challenges or accepts and endorses the patriarchal status quo and the misogyny of the time. A post-colonial critique will study the way Othello is portrayed as the other in a white world. Structuralist criticism will look at language to expose the shifting and ambivalent relationship between words and meaning. Post-structuralists We'll look for what isn't there as well as what is, at how the plot is framed and the assumptions being made. 